0: Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, July 19th, 2020. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so confession time. Uh, I've only ever kissed four people uh, in my life. I mean, like, romantically kissed, that is. And a side note, three of those four I only ever kissed once. I don't want to divulge the identity of the person that I kissed more than one time. We'll keep that between me and her. Um actually though, it's my uh first kiss uh that I want to talk to you about today, you know, because every church member should know their pastor's romantic exploits, right? Um <clears throat> this is where if we were actually worshiping together in person this morning, my wife Jody would give me that uh, oh no, don't you go there look. And you know, every husband knows exactly what this look is, right? It's kind of like yeah, well, she's not here this morning, so here we go. <clears throat> I was in junior high, right? Just about to graduate from eighth grade. I hadn't uh, really had a true girlfriend before, uh, partly because my parents said I couldn't until I was 16, And in case you're wondering, I was not 16 in eighth grade. So anyway, at our graduation dance, a little chemistry started uh, between myself and a certain Jerry Ann Costello. Now, fortunately, that chemistry was able to continue at a graduation party that was thrown by one of our classmates. I honestly don't remember who it was that hosted the party. But the cool thing about this party is that it started with a hayride. Right so Jerry Ann and I got to sit together on the hayride and are you ready We got to <clears throat> hold Hands, I know, shocking, isn't it? Well, when the hayride was finished, everyone headed back to the townhouse of our host, and there was music, and there were uh, punch and snacks, and at the uh, appropriate time, Jerry ann and I uh, slipped out into the backyard. We moved behind the building, got, got a little close, and then I leaned in for what would be my first kiss. Looking back, uh, I'm not exactly sure what I expected it to be like, uh, warm, soft, maybe a little romantic music playing in the background, but as soon as we kissed, I just blurted out the first thing that came across my mind, and that was, wow, just like a fish. There was a lot of, like, and I, I don't know, yeah, it, it, was not my finest moment, Um uh, it also turned out to be my last kiss uh, with Jerry ann Costello. She broke up with me the next day by telephone. So, <clears throat> yeah, well, uh, welcome to the fourth and final week of our summer sermon series entitled uh, Masterpiece, The Spirituality Behind Classic Works of Art. And we've been looking at such art classics as uh, Michelangelo's The Pieta, Van Gogh's The Starry Night, Edvard Munch's The Scream. And today we finish with this, The Kiss by Gustav Klimt. Normally I begin each session by digging deep into the backstory of each piece of art. We look at the artist who created it, what was happening in his or her life leading up to that certain, uh, the creation of that certain piece. We examine what went into the creation and, and then we connect to some Bible story or passage and we tie in the spiritual connections Today, however, we're going to mix it up a little bit, and, and today I want to start with the Bible passage, or at least the book from which our passage comes from. We're in the Old Testament. Wisdom literature, the Song of Songs, though most people know the book title as the Song of Solomon. The usual English translation of the, t- the full title is the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And, and it also that title serves as verse 1 Of chapter 1. And though Solomon's name is in the title, most modern scholars do not believe that he authored it. It also could be rendered uh, dedicated to Solomon, or about Solomon, or in Solomon's style. Those are just some of the ways that commentators say we could uh, look at that title. The phrase Song of Songs is superlative, as in it is the best of songs, like King of Kings and Lord of Lords, similar examples of superlative titles. The early church father, Origen, in the third century, said this about the book. Blessed is he who enters holy spaces, but much more blessed is he who enters the holy of holies. Likewise, blessed is he who knows holy songs and sings them, but much more blessed is he who sings the song of songs. Which sounds like great PR, doesn't it? Robert W. Jensen is his interpretation commentary in the book, says it's one of the three most commented-upon books in all of the Bible, and yet there's very little consensus consensus on its meaning. Theo Meek, in his intro to the book in his Interpreter's Bible Commentary, uh, writes this. Of all the books in the Old Testament, none is so difficult to interpret as the Song of Songs. About no other book has so much been written, and concerning no other are there such differences of opinion and such variety of interpretations. You see, it's about love, right? One commentator wrote, the theme of the book is love, pure, sensuous, youthful, passionate love. Love that is hungry as the sea, as it says at some point in the book. Bernard of Clairvaux, the medieval theologian, who he himself wrote 86 sermons on the Song of Solomon. There's only eight chapters in there, but he got 86 sermons out of it. He said this about the book It is everywhere love that speaks. If anyone hopes to grasp the sense of what he reads, let him love. Whereas someone who does not love will hear or read this song of love in vain. Though the original scripture or structure and purpose of this song are hidden from us, this much is clear. It's a series of love poems in praise of love. It's full of sensual words and symbols. Sexual yearning and fulfillment are sung without reticence, moral judgment, or even a great deference to legal or social constraints. The poetry sings of the love of a passionate woman and her sometimes elusive and sometimes very persistent lover. They are the two main characters throughout this book, though there's also a female chorus and briefly a male chorus, and the character of Solomon makes an appearance towards the end as well. And once or twice, the poet seems to speak in his or her own voice. What's interesting is that, overtly, the poetry in this book is wholly secular. In fact, God is never mentioned in the book. Not only that, but there is no reference to any religious Practices or religious beliefs. Now, it doesn't mean that people haven't tried to spiritualize it over the years. In fact, the earliest interpretation was that this book was an allegory. That the male character was God, that the female character was the Hebrew people, and that the book depicted the experiences of God and His people throughout history. Christianity tweaked it a bit to say the male character is Jesus and the female, the church, But the near-universal interpretation from biblical scholars now, including uh, within Judaism, is that is not what the book is about. Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And from the very opening of this book, love is in the air, and it's all about the kiss. Speaking of the kiss, it was created by the Austrian painter Gustav Klimt sometime between 1707 and 1907 and 1908. The painting depicts a couple embracing each other, their bodies entwined in elaborate, beautiful robes. It's representative of the Art Nouveau style of painting and was originally entitled The Lovers when it premiered in 1908. There's so much amazing detail in this piece. From the field of wildflowers at the bottom of the painting, the setting for this couple's uh, amorous encounter, to the woman's exposed feet out from under the robes, from the geometric patterns and swirls of the man's robe to the woman's flowing floral dress. He wears a crown of vines in his hair, she's adorned with a crown of flowers. And notice their faces, right? We can't really see the man's face. It's bent down to kiss the woman's cheek. And while her eyes are closed in what some see as a peaceful tranquility, it basking in the intimacy of this encounter. And and I didn't even get to comment on the hands that are so lovingly painted. The kiss is one of the most well-known pieces of art worldwide. It's on display in the Belvedere Museum in Vienna, Austria, and it's actually quite large. It's approximately six feet tall by six feet wide. And you may be surprised to discover that it was painted while the artist, Gustav Klimt, was in the midst of an artistic panic. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start at the very beginning. Born in Baumgarten near Vienna, back then it was called Austria-Hungary, on July 14th, 1862, Gustav Klimt was the second of seven children, three boys and four girls in his family. His father, Ernst Klimt Sr., was a gold engraver who married Anna, who wanted to be a musical performer. Gustav's childhood was spent in relative poverty. They moved five different times before he was 22 years old, always seeking cheaper housing. The painter would have to support his family financially all throughout his lifetime. When he was 14, a relative encouraged him to apply to study architectural painting at the Vienna School of Arts and Crafts, and he passed the entrance exam with distinction. In 1877, (coughs) excuse me, Gustav's brother Ernst Jr. joined him at the Vienna School of Arts. The two brothers and their friend Franz Mach uh, began working together. They called themselves the Company of Artists and became rather popular, receiving multiple commissions. The trio specialized in interior decorating, particularly theaters. Gustav's professional career began painting interior murals and ceilings in various public buildings throughout Vienna. And his most successful series in his early years was, uh, was a, a series of, of paintings called Allegories and Emblems. In 1888, at age 26, Gustav Klimp received the Golden Order of Merit from Emperor Franz Joseph I of Austria for his work on the uh, Berg Theater in Vienna. But four years later, in 1892, tragedy struck. Klimp's father and brother, Ernest, both died. And he had to assume the financial responsibility now for both families, his and his brothers. The deaths affected his artistic vision as well, giving his work a more personal style. In fact, he practically abandoned his classically trained painting techniques and Klimt turned towards the radical new styles of Art Nouveau. In 1893, he began his work on what would be the last public commission, three large ceiling paintings for the University of Vienna. They were entitled Philosophy, Medicine, and Jurisprudence. The three would only be completed by the early 1900s, and they were met with significant controversy uh, due to the nudity he portrayed in one of the pieces. Eighty-seven faculty members protested against the murals, so Klimt never installed them at the university, and he refused ever again to receive any public funds for his work. By the way, during World War II, Nazi soldiers purportedly destroyed the works with only sketches and a few photographs remaining, which is what this is from an exhibit in Vienna, just pictures of what they used to look like. The kiss was birthed on the heels of this debacle at the University of Vienna. And as you might have expected, it also was not without controversy. According to Alexa Gotthard's May 2019 article on artsy.net, the kiss was created at the height of the Viennese avant-garde and psychosexual revolution. In fact, Klimt was a good friend of Sigmund Freud. It was seen by some, this painting, as brazenly erotic, politically charged, and artistically revolutionary. Klimt had become part of a movement known as the Succession, a a word borrowed from an ancient Roman term uh, that was defined as a revolt against ruling powers. Their motto? To each age, it's art, and to art, it's freedom. Gustav never married, but some think the kiss could actually be seen as a self-portrait, where the lovers are symbolic of the artist and his long-term partner, Emile Flöge. However, the female figure could also be another one of Klimt's many muses or romantic conquests, as he had many lovers over his lifetime. In fact, he had quite the reputation of being a Casanova. When the kiss was exhibited in 1908, it was universally celebrated as a masterpiece. In fact, before the exhibition even closed, Austria's king had purchased it for the Royal Museum. At an astounding sum at that time of 25,000 crowns, which is the equivalent of $250,000 today. Klimt would go on to paint quite a few more pieces that surrounded the themes of sensuality and love. And at one point he said, art is a line around your thoughts. And evidently, love was on his mind quite a bit, like it is for so many of us, right? Which brings us... Back to the Song of Songs, beginning at verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant, your name is perfume poured out. Therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you, let us make haste. The king has brought me into his chambers, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine, rightly do they love you. I think it's safe to say that Christianity uh, has struggled with human sexuality over the centuries. Many in the church have wanted to separate uh, our physical bodies from our spiritual lives, which may be why the allegorical interpretation of the Song of Songs was prevalent for so long. And yet the Genesis story of creation says that God created humankind, male and female, in God's image. Genesis two twenty four to twenty five says therefore a man leaves his father and a mother cling uh, and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not afraid. Yet by and large the church over the centuries has been somewhat uncomfortable with human sexuality. So we encounter uh, an entire book like the Song of Solomon that's made up entirely of erotic love poetry and what exactly do you do with that? Frederick Buechner, one of my favorite writers, looks at the Song of Solomon in his book, The Hungering Dark. In a sermon entitled The Two Loves, Buechner speaks about the Greek word eros. He writes this, Eros is not only sexual love, although the word erotic has come to mean that, but it is any love that reaches up for what in itself is not and has not. Eros is the love of what is beautiful, The love of what is true, the love of what is good, the love of what is missing and necessary. He goes on to say that, yes, uh, Eros is also the love of two people, but it's also the love of a child for his or her parents, or the love of a person for their work through which they express themselves and contribute to the betterment of humanity. He writes, It's the love of what is wanted what is needed, and on the level of sexual need, biblical faith affirms that eros is good. In biblical thought, man does not have a body so much as he is a body. He is a body into which God has breathed the breath of life, his spirit, and therefore it is not in spite of his body that he does God's will and become what he was created to become, but in and through his body, his, or we shall say her, sexuality included. So, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, says the woman in the Song of Songs. To kiss is to express love. We have been loved by God so fully and completely, and we are invited to share that love with those special people in our lives. Our spouses, yes, but also our children, our parents, our siblings, our family members, even our close friends, and not only through kissing, but through a number of different ways that we express our love to others. God has given us a loving relationships to help us not only be fully alive, but to be fully human. And to live out who it is that God created us to be, to be made in God's image, is to love. Theo Meeks writes, To love is to sing. The best songs, the most familiar songs, the songs we all love to sing, are love songs. Love puts music in the heart and translates prose into poetry and fills the mind with images and dreams and visions. That is why the world's great music and poetry and art are all inspired by love. And that's why we say here every week at Palmdale United Methodist Church that we are inspired by Jesus to love. love. God's love that fills us and gives us the chance to love others. Love is the greatest power in the world. My brothers and sisters of faith, your homework for today and maybe throughout this upcoming week is twofold. First, read through the Song of Solomon. It's just eight chapters long. But but enjoy the poetry, get swept up in the imagery, experience the relationship, the ups and the downs, the struggles and the joys of this couple in the book. And two, know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, you are loved. You're loved by God, and you're loved by this community of faith. And there's so many ways that we can express that love. I hope that no matter how you may feel at any particular day, and we've all been there, that you will come to know in your heart that you are loved, all of us are loved, and we are worthy of love, and we are capable of loving others so deeply. May the song of Solomon and Gustav Klimt's The Kiss inspire you this week, my friends. May you receive the love that God has given you. May it cause you and your soul to sing. May you love the ones that God has placed in your life. And may you recognize that your life, your life is truly a masterpiece created by the Almighty God himself to radiate and express love in all you say and do. You may, however, uh, not want to mention anything about kissing like a fish. Just some personal advice. It doesn't end well when you do that. Um, Anyway, thanks for joining me uh, on this virtual museum tour these last four weeks. And may God continue to fill you with everything you need to be all that God's called and created you to be now and forever. Amen. Amen.